Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. Douglas Raggio, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate you making the time. We've had the opportunity to have a number of fun discussions over the years, you know, both in front of an audience at, at Expo West and also over various beverages. Fish and chips. Fish Santa and Marca chips. Pier. <laughs> exactly right. In particular, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think uh, when it comes to food and consumer investing, we, we certainly have a lot of overlap there and, and see the world much the same. But I'd love to start by asking you a little bit about your background before you came to being an entrepreneur and investor in, in CPG. And you mentioned something to me in the past that you found a lot of success right out of the gate from college. And so maybe we could just start there. Would love to understand what that means and, and what that looked like for you. Sure. Sitting where I'm at today, success is measured differently than it was when I was 21, 22. <laughs> we'll just start with that. Yeah, I came out of college working in PR and got a, you know, first shot was just a big PR agency in Los Angeles and their tech group in 2000. Big team and just big accounts and big budgets. And it was nice. And then the kind of the first dot com boom bust hit. And yeah, then after that was, you know, another big PR agency. And then I was running even bigger accounts. And then it went to like a luxury, you know, PR agency. And those were like very large accounts with very luxurious, you know, global brands. I don't think I told you this, but yeah, Bentley was one. So like I had a Bentley for a while at 24, like a loaner car that I could cruise around town in, which was not good for the ego. That won't go to your head at 24. Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> it was literally like, I could feel myself just becoming a jerk. I even gave it back. I was like, I don't like this. Like, I don't like driving around and it's weird, but yeah. So no, I did that and then worked for a big sport or a startup sports marketing agency and yeah, from there, it was bigger accounts and bigger athlete names and bigger budgets. And not that I was like, had the Midas touch, but I didn't really get turned down for ideas, you know, up until about 27. So it was a good, you know, five, six year run. And then started, you know, started a, f- a company with a buddy or a friend or a colleague. And we were darlings of the industry. It was in motorcycles and he had a name before and we took that name and kind of blew it up. And yeah, that was like where the adoration came in and celebrity status of like, not me. Cause I was the guy behind the guy, but it sure didn't help just put more fuel on my ego driven, you know? Yeah. I was running like boats and helicopters every weekend, just living paycheck to paycheck. And it was stupid. My account at the time told me, I was recklessly spending. And I think my exact words were, I'm going to earn like this for a long time. And then the next year came and I sued the business partner. The tap turned off and I went from living a high life to like grossly in debt. And then, then I started cooking stews and that was what got me into food. Gotcha. So yeah, it was a, it was a humbling experience. 
And the show in particular, you were dealing with Discovery Channel, and uh, it was it was uh, pretty popular there for a while, right? It was, yeah. It was an anchor show on a block of programming, I think, on a Monday. Yeah, it was really. It was when, yeah, it was. It's back when motorcycles were real big on TV. Yep. And what was that experience like, going from something that was just you know wildly popular and renowned to all of a sudden that going away? I mean, humbling is, is the first word, but like humiliating as well to friends and family. Cause that catastrophic fail led to almost a decade of being rudderless, you know, self-destructive, self-sabotaging, just not living to my potential for sure. Yeah. People would, I was just kind of like flailing. Flailing is a good word too. So to go from that, it's just, it, it takes you, it took me a couple of years to even just realize that I was, you know, kind of in the skids or in the gutter. I thought that when I sued the business partner that I'd see money immediately and he had a lot more than me and he could wave me out, which ended up being like a year and a half, if I remember correctly. And it was just hand to mouth, man. And I was dodging creditors because I had this big fancy Mercedes and I moved towns and essentially I was homeless, crashing on couches. And yeah, I was just, I don't even know. I cannot tell you for that 10 years how I really paid my bills consistently. It was, you know, generosity of friends, giving me project work. A big deal would come in. I'd close that and that would be a nice check, but it was feast or famine. And even feasting, it was like, it was like a charcuterie board versus a feast. It was just enough to get by for like the next day um, or next month. So yeah, it was, uh, what was that experience like? I mean, it was shitty, but I don't know. Sometimes when you're, when you're in the mess and you're down there, like it's hard to, it's hard when your basic needs aren't covered and it's, you're so focused on just making the next day happen or the next week or the next, you know, cell phone bill or whatever is become very myopic and it gets really hard to get out of. So when I was, you know, kind of the little darling out of college, you know, it was all ideas and potential and upside and like how big and great can we do? And then to like, and I'll tell you this, this is something I don't think I've shared much is I was doing the venture fund during that, that 10 years and was getting a lot of samples of food. And I lived on samples of other brands that were soliciting me for funds for a decent amount of time, not lived, but like it was part of the diet. And there was a time where I got a dog food sample and I ate dog food in the office. Why I had an office even at that point was I couldn't afford it. I don't know why I was still there, but yeah, like it was just like, what the hell is going on here? But you don't even like think like you don't have like the awareness at that point to like look up and be like, wow, this isn't very good. So what was I thinking at the time? Survive. Yeah. You know, financially. And you mentioned the venture fund and getting into food. Share a little bit more around how you kind of got into food. What is starting to make stews look like? And what did that evolution into the venture fund look like for you? So, yeah, my parents retired from the Bay Area. That's where I grew up. And they retired to Farrop, Alabama, kind of Gulf Shores area. And they always have great gumbos and jambalayas. And I got exposed to those and thought they were delicious. And I couldn't get any kind of your standard founder story. I couldn't find anything good here. And so started working with a chef that was friends. You know, we were friendly. And so developed a couple recipes, did some tastings in home, started looking at ingredient sourcing and looking at packaging designs, costing. And, but ultimately, I mean, because I was flat on my, you know, my behind, didn't have any funds. So yeah, it was this great idea to have fresh single serve pints because nobody was doing it. It was just like Dinty Moore at the time. Now there's a whole like fresh set in the front of stores, but there wasn't back then. And 
So I thought I'd just ask other founders. So I went down the farmer's market list and called every packaged food brand, just asked for advice, explained what I was doing, told my founder from the farmer's market. And 60 brands, 58 of them had the same problem. They couldn't find capital and had no access to it. Um, Two brands tried to sell me their business, which I thought was just crazy. Like I was a stranger asking for advice and they were trying to offload. And it was just one of those moments. I'm like, wow, this is going to be me in two, three years. And I don't want to be in the same situation. And, you know, had had some knowledge of what venture capital was from my tech days back in PR and figured, oh, I'll go find the venture capital fund that does food. And lo and behold, there was none. You know, this was 13 something years, 14 something years ago. And uh, so that's when I thought, you know, oh, that's interesting. Like, let's go fix the problem in finance. And I, I don't have an MBA. I don't have a finance background. I'm an operator's background. I don't have rich, you know, wealthy friends and family. It was just me. So yeah, I found a team, got a good attorney that introduced me to some people and we raised about a million dollars and it was called Gastronome Ventures. And we invested in, you know, small number of companies and like any venture fund, most of them didn't, you know, didn't know some didn't come to fruition. And one's still, I think around it, I don't see it, but I'm, I think it's alive. But yeah. So that's what got me into venture and it was tough. It was tough. You know, a lot of the imposter syndrome from my, my childhood came in because I was trying to, you know, be the financier and wear the suits and talk the language and, that's not me, but I tried to fit a mold. And but again, I was like, you know, I was rudderless and aimless and like trying to like grab at straws and make things happen. And it just wasn't authentic at the end of the day. And I think it, that, that probably resonated or didn't resonate with people, and which is why it's such a difficulty. You mentioned your childhood. How did your childhood experience play into your professional and, and adult life later on? So I just started sharing this with folks, not publicly, not that I was hiding it, it, just, it seems to come up more because I'm starting to get asked about certain things. But so I was artificially inseminated back in the 70s. My parents trial and aired for many years. Their high school sweethearts are still together this day and just they couldn't conceive naturally. And so they you know, kind of took to science. And anyhow, you know, 1978 comes, I, you know, brought to term and other story around that. But eventually the Catholic church told my parents I'm Italian. The Catholic church told my parents that they wouldn't baptize me because I was born without a soul. I was conceived by man, not God. And you know, I don't know the whole story around that, but you know, some of my parents did not go along with the whole confess them as a sin and we'll baptize them story. And so I grew up in a town that was in hindsight, pretty related for after school programs to the church. And so I wasn't really participating in after school sports or programs or CCD or any other things that are kind of, I guess, after school programs. And I didn't think like I was picked on really bad and bullied like so much to where and I told this just here today and it made somebody cry, but like I had my own recess in fourth grade. Like I went outside and the other kids stayed inside and then I went inside and they went outside and I don't know, it just very isolating and like kind of not acceptance. Like I'm not like the other kids. And my guess is why I was bullied is because I wasn't, you know, forming bonds with my peers because I wasn't doing the after school stuff. I was just kind of a the weird kid that showed up at school. Um, I don't know. Kids are kids and want to do the best they can. But uh, I think that stuck with me for a while. It's like this, like identity, self-worth, things like that. Just they, they hang with you. And if you're not looking at yourself and you're not, you know, peeling back the layers, you're not quote unquote doing the work on yourself. And I was just, you know, riding a trip of ego and <laughs> indulgences. Yeah, when it comes crashing down, you got nothing. Like you have nothing really to fall back on. You don't know who you're because I built my identity around work. And when that goes away, then like it leaves you pretty aimless. And then 
that's when, you know, self-medicating comes in and, you know, numbing and avoidance and all the other shit that's destructive. And yeah, it took a while. It took a while to like, probably at 37, I started to realize when like, what maybe my past may or may not have a role. Like I'm not trying to build a story around it, but like it could be one, you know, reason. I think it's a reason, but whatever it happened. And, uh, yeah, for a while it left me in a funky spot. And you mentioned the 27 to 37 years being kind of a, a lost decade for you. I think you, you shared one story with me about a car accident that you had and, and sort of the existential lesson, I guess, that you took from that. Could you, could you share that experience? Wasn't a car accident. It was a, it was a close call, but still left me jittery. And so for context to that time, the day prior I had had this moment, I was sitting on the couch in my apartment and around me was all of my stuff that I'd bought right out of college, like all the furniture and the decor and everything. Like, and I just carried it with me, like literally physically and emotionally. And just, if you believe in energy, like just bad juju was with this stuff. And it was just kind of like been there. It was like this staleness in the apartment, different place, same environment. Like it just doesn't work. And I had this big pipeline of consulting deals that month. It was May right before my birthday. And so it was May. I had this big pipeline of consulting. I think, okay, I'm finally back. Like this is the biggest you know, amount of pipeline of deals, consulting gigs I've ever had. And I'm back on top. And then nothing came together, which was odd because you know, never had had that big of a pipeline of opportunity, but also nothing ever convert to an actual paying gig. And so you know, at that point, I was, my phone had been shut off. My mother paid the phone bill because she was freaked out. My car had been repossessed. I had a, my second eviction notice on the door. Like they stopped even just folding it. They just left it wide open so the neighbors could see, which was super insulting and insulting. Just really embarrassing, I guess is a better word. But good on them for getting my attention. And so, oh, and the, the Culligan man, that was, that was the capper. He was trying to, he kept beating on my door to repossess the under sink water filtration system I had paid on. It was just like, it was just, it was everything. And so that was the, the night before this close call was that, and I had this kind of re- reflection was I've been digging deep for a while. And as I just kind of indicated about a decade, it's like, I've been digging deep. And I've kind of always made things happen, but like, I wonder where bottom is. Like, I'm probably getting pretty close to like, you know, hitting that bedrock and went to bed with that feeling. And then the next day was in this kind of close call car accident. It was jittery. And sitting back on that same couch in that same stale environment and thought if I was in that accident, you know, and had to fight for my life, would I? And I didn't have an answer. Like, I didn't think like if they were like the jaws of life were coming in and they were like, stay alive or whatever they say when they're doing that kind of stuff or don't go towards the light. <laughs> if I would really kind of man up or whatever, or just like, or I would just say like, yeah, give them a shot. That freaked me out. Like really freaked me out. Like, like collapsed and not collapsed, but like kind of just had a moment. Like I kind of slid off the couch and. I had a good hearty cry. And that was, uh, I think that's what I could consider my bottom, at least emotionally and for sure financially. And randomly, and this is where I don't understand things and I don't try to understand how the world works. Like, like when we talk universe or higher power, God, whatever you want to call it. But the next morning I get an email from a family office I had been advising a deal on five, six months prior. And the deal went through and they wired me more than a quarter million dollars. And I was like, what? what, like, what is going on right now? Like, it's just, it's just a dramatic shift. And yeah, it was a gnarly, it was a gnarly re- like revelation for myself, this existential type moment, but then to like be re- rewarded quite unquote unquote, by like the work I had done you know, like, half a year earlier and 
just trippy. It's just, it's trippy to go through those, those types of moments. And I guess it's just like where maybe I learned faith, you know, for lack of a better term, like just do the work, show up, be present and you know, always kind of be at your best performing. And from that kind of moment on, actually a little prior to that, like I stopped all the, I stopped any drinking. I stopped kind of going out late and partying, like all that kind of stuff. It was a distraction that I've been using to like escape. I just cut, like I pruned my life really hard. People, activities, pretty much haven't looked back since. It's only been, you know, six years, something like that, but it's been a good six years. Not without its hardships, but yeah. It's great. I mean, that seems like a pretty dramatic turning point and clearly your ability to discuss that that period of time in your life uh, i mean it seems like you've gained a, a tremendous amount of perspective what kind of work have you put in to get that perspective if any or does it just kind of come with time i mean i went to aa for a little bit of time and i'd never done any therapy or anything and so you know to go through the step work it's pretty interesting like again i'd never it's a process and it's it's a process where you have to go and do different i forget all the steps but Regardless, that was kind of the first real work that I had done, like therapeutic type inner, you know, reflection. And it was forced because it's not forced, but like it was part of the me just kind of finding a community of people that didn't party. And so, yeah, so that was my, you know, and I, I'm not, you know, kind of an AA disciple, but I will give it credit for my life and the role it played because it did kind of give me that. It, it knocked me out enough out of my rut to show me a different path. And it gave me, you know, some sort of structure to start to identify things and from them, it's just been a lot of just sharing and just being open with friends and not hiding. Like I hit a bunch when things were not good. I didn't want to share my position. I didn't want to share what was going on. I didn't tell my family. And God, my, you know, my parents were super supportive. My brother's super supportive. You know, my friends are super supportive, but like, I don't think any of them knew because I didn't want to share it. Cause I was just so either ashamed or I could work my way through it. You know, like that good old, you know, Buddha buttercup. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the other work is just a lot of, I started meditating yoga kind of those things just to calm the mind and a lot of just self-care it's giving myself more space not taking on so much ironically the less i do the more it gets accomplished you know i really try to focus on the things every day that you have to go right and are like the mission critical stuff and the rest of things can either get done later or they kind of just go away um because they weren't that important in the first place like this fetishization or whatever if that's a word of being, you know, optimizing and life hacking and getting all done and goals, achieve, goal, achieve. Like I'm done with that. Like I, I lived that way for too long. It's now, yeah, things are just, there's more ease, dare I say grace, but kind of feels that way. And I know after Gastrum Ventures, you started Bias and Blind Spots with a particular thesis. And I know you've, you've got a great new startup that you're running now that we'll get into in a second, but how in your sort of career advising earlier stage brands, advising, you know, food and consumer brands, how have your experiences and your hardships contributed to the, the entrepreneur and advisor that, that you are today? I am probably more empathetic to founders than I was originally. I'm also not going to pull any punches. I don't think kid gloves are necessary. I think people should go with their eyes wide open. So if they're looking to raise funds from venture capital, they should know what venture capital is looking for. If they're going to go bootstrap, they should know what bootstrapping. If they want a business, you know, uh, that provides a nice lifestyle, they should build the business backwards from that. So yeah, I think a lot of my advisory could be, it could come off as harsh and I'm trying to soften that, but you know, the faster somebody can get it through their skull that, you know, either what they're doing has implications they haven't thought about or 
just because they're doing something because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean it's right. Just there's just kind of these 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 guideposts I wish I would have seen. And to, quite frankly, if I would have been told them, I probably would have listened. So whatever, we each learn our own way. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, yeah, I don't know, man. It's I advise against venture capital. I've been the fund manager, and I've strongly suggested short-sighted you know decisions to bump you know either an optic or get some sort of, you know, marker to raise a valuation. It's just, it's all very temporary and short-sighted. It's not real. I don't think it's real business. I, I think it's, it's a game of, you know, perception, sleight of hand. So, you know, I will, there's very few founders that really truly, when they understand the implications of what it means to go on that ride to get an exit, I don't think many food and beverage founders started out to be billionaires. I think they started out because they had a better product they wanted to share with people. So if you don't want to be a billionaire or hundreds of millionaires or whatever that big number is, then you don't need that. You don't, you know, the kind of the phrase is if you're not looking to build a rocket, then you don't need rocket fuel. And I think it's very appropriate. Now some brands are. So um, food and beverage is a bit of an anomaly. You know, there's not that many people forget that there's a buyer and a seller in a transaction. And when you have tens of thousands of sellers and 11 major buyers, maybe two dozen tops, like there's going to be a lot of fallout from that. And, you know, the numbers aren't in your favor. And then like the buying climate has to be right. And like, it's always your pool of opportunity to actually actually just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And sadly, the more you raise, the smaller your percentage of the company begins. So it's like, yes, it might be a huge pie, but you only own 6% at the end of the day. Like that's not, is that worth five years of, you know, blood, sweat and tears when you could have just had a nice life with something much smaller? I think that there's your answer. It's the right sizing the company to your life. That's, I think, what I, maybe I don't say in those words, but like, that's what I try to get. If you're going to go for this, this is how you can do it. If you're going to go for this, this is how you do it. And avoid these types of things. Because not everybody wants to go and sell their company for several tens of hundreds of millions of dollars. They're fine with a you know, million dollars or so a year, which is an amazing life. Yeah, that sounds like a good deal. <laughs> yeah, people forget that. I know that you work with a handful of family offices thinking through investing in the space. What's typically your... Outlook for somebody that says, hey, you know, I want to deploy capital in CPG land. How do you recommend I do it? No one's ever come to me and said those direct words. They've <laughs> been Because if they would, I would have taken it most likely. But uh, no, it's like anything. It's expectations. You know, an, an investment is risk, return, and timeline. That I think is like the three tenets of any investment. And it's what is your appetite for risk? What is your expect, you know, expectations on returns? And what's the timeline in which you want to achieve those? And what I really like about family offices is that they're, while they're very risk opposed, like risk adverse, you know, they have much longer time horizons. So if you want to build something of, you know, significance and some permanence, like this, this, this concept of permanence in our food supply and independence has been lost with all this venture capital activity. So for a family office, I think a lot of family offices forget the fact that they have, they have time on their side. You know, they don't have to return money in a three to five year window. And then there's all kinds of different ways they can structure a deal because they have a much larger asset base. And it comes down to like their cost of capital is far cheaper than a startup founder. So there's this, you know, this leverage of sorts that they can lend at and really mitigate a lot of their risk. But that takes unique structures. It's not going into a VC fund and mitigating risk through spray and pray. It's through deal structure and asset, you know, acquisitions and just kind of covering the downside. So, yeah. If somebody can do it, it's, it's again, it's understand what your risk return timeline is. It's let's talk about what you have that's unique to you. And a lot of times you have this timeline that, that most founders would find very desirable. And they will give a far better deal to somebody who's not going to push them to grow as fast as possible to exit. So, yeah. And 
I know that you're spending most of your time now working on a company that you started. Would love to hear a little bit more around how that came to be. Yeah, pass the honey. <laughs> pass the honey. Pass um, the honey. It's a single serve, pre-cut, pure, unadulterated honeycomb company. It's like, we call it snacking honey, right? So it's a 20 gram cube of honeycomb that's been sourced from uh, the remotest regions of Turkey, tested vigorously with third-party labs to ensure that it is the highest quality honey we can possibly find in the world. And we test with the highest level of testing standards to double check that, you know, it is from the source to say it is, and it's not been adulterated. The whole purpose of this company has been to set regenerative standards and practices for honey globally, specifically in service to the role that pollinators play in our current food system and, you know, pollinating the monocrops. So there's obviously a lot of knowledge and opinion and hearsay on bees and hive health and colony collapse and things of that nature. But kind of the contributor I see is that 70% of liquid honey on store shelves doesn't even test for pollen. It's been blended with other syrups and sugars. So when you have honey is the third most fraudulent, liquid honey is the third most fraudulent food on the planet behind olive oil and milk. Like there's that much fraud. There's a real case that most Americans have never tasted real honey. The numbers, again, the probability is thin because of the rampant fraud. And if, if blending and heating are the two most fraudulent acts to adulterate honey, those are immediately off the table with honeycomb. So past the honey's kind of job is to educate the consumer to change the conversation, the relationship to honey, educate on the benefits of pure unadulterated honey, health benefits, and all the uses in a convenient form that allows them to, you know, share it with others. So, you know, that being said, we have a really, for a startup company, we have a pretty robust, it is the most robust pollinator research and habitat restoration effort in North America, probably the world. And it's kind of saddens me that no one's really doing this work and that we're taking it on, which is exciting for us, but sad for kind of the marketplace perspective. However, again, when you're in liquid honey and fraudulent categories, there's not really that ability to reinvest in the supply chain. You know, when you're trying to sell things for 12 cents or three cents a serving doesn't leave much room for R&D. But, you know, we have this unique little product and it's super novel and people seem to really enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's pure honey. It's glucose for the athletes. It's charcuterie board for those folks. It's, you know, snacking for kids. It's nostalgia for kind of an older, an older consumer. Remembers eating it on the farm. It's millennial moms who are putting in their kids' lunches is like enviable snacks and it's in spiritual gift stores and it's in delis and it's, where else is this thing? Flower shops, because we're a supporter of regenerative agriculture. Yeah, it's, I, I've never had a brand that I've looked at in the past that has this kind of broad appeal and footprint, which makes it super exciting and gives us a great ability to reinvest those profits back into the supply chain. Because for me to sell the best, high and qual- you know, highest quality product means I need the highest, most ecologically diverse landscape. So it's like, you talk about win-wins, it's like, okay, I have a very little footprint with a beehive, but I have this diverse biome that has all these, you know, flora that sequestering carbon that allows me to have really great tasting honey. So it's like, it's this, it's an anomaly, man. This thing's a total anomaly and just where it's taken my life. I never thought I'd be peddling honeycomb and reinvesting, you know, I don't think I told you, but when we spoke last, but we are, uh, my signatures are on the contracts. They're, they're circulating a few others, but it's, uh, we have a 504,000 acre commitment in Pacific Northwest 
for pollinator research and habitat restoration with one of the largest private private landowners in the United States. And we have another 190,000 acres under negotiation in Tennessee for the same, um, and another 90,000 in Pennsylvania that has presented itself. So we're looking at like just shy of a million acres of pollinator research, habitat restoration, and you know, if that all goes well, we will have the first fully independent, regeneratively sourced supply of honey in the United States, which is amazing. So those locations will supply your product in addition to creating habitat for the bees? They're one and the same. Got it. Yeah, that's habitat restoration. Yeah. It's also creation and formation, but. Well, what's what's cool about your product, I think, is I would imagine that for most consumers, that's their first interaction with actual honeycomb, right? Yeah. Because I think, you know, I think a lot of people growing up, honeycomb is cereal. You see it on Honey Nut, Honey Nut Cheerio, yeah. <laughs> Cheerio commercials, yeah. right? There's not a lot of opportunity to have direct interaction with what is kind of like this very interesting organic structure. It is. Uh, the first question is, <laughs> can you eat it? Like, yes, wax and all. Yes, wax and all. What do you do with it? I'm like, you can eat it direct like anything or you can put it on toast. Oh, it's delicious. It's pure honey, man. I haven't sent you a box. I don't think you have. Send me your address. I'll get you a box. Yeah, it's unlike anything. There's this funkiness. So it's so funky in the taste profile that because it has wax. So you have honey and you have wax. Honey is sweet. Wax is savory. So it has this like this inversion in your mouth where if you hold it in your mouth it either starts sweet if you if you kind of break it and you chew it a little bit and then it evolves to savory and then if you kind of hold it in your mouth it starts savory and then once you break the comb it goes into sweet and there's like this weird moment this transition moment where it's like eye rolling for me i was like what in the world and i only found this out when i brought a sommelier on board to help us identify what the heck this was it's like can you help us with the flavors like there's no reason honey should not be like wine it has terroir it has color, taste, mouthfeel, texture, like every conversation about wine is equally applicable to honey. So yeah, we brought this sommelier on board. She had, we have a whole tasting program for people that just educate on honey and kind of elevate the conversation and yeah, put it kind of on its, its pedestal that we believe it should be is this pure unadulterated, you know, honeycomb's never been touched by man or machine since the bee put it in the cell. Like that's crazy. What other ingredients can say that? And so how does that what you're doing differ from sort of standard honey production and how does the, the industry standard threaten the, the bee population? Uh, big question, uh, complex question and answer. So existing standards in the United States, if you're a commercial beekeeper in the United States, you are financially committed and predominantly dependent upon what is called pollinator services which is where you transport your bees around the United States to pollinate the crops because there are no, there is no native habitat. And so you need to bring in artificial pollinators. That service exposes the bees to pesticides, exposes them to stress, exposes all of them to disease because you get all the bees in one spot at one time. It's like kids at preschool, they all get sick. And then also theft, which is a huge thing. So For commercial beekeepers, you know, people say bees are in danger, you know, there's an issue with bees, but like, I would say, I would argue that commercial beekeepers are also, you know, hurting. And so it's not the best practices for the bees, but yet here they are, you know, dependent. So liquid honey becomes a secondary income source at that point. And 
I'm not going to say all, but I will say the practice is so fraudulent. They'll blend out the impurities and they'll use other syrup sugars or other sources of honey. You blend it out. And that blending is done on a global scale by middlemen, by brokers. There's blending houses. So that same Vice Magazine has a really good expose on the honey industry from like last March or April. And it shows that not only does 70% not even test for pollen, but even when they can find the source, there's like seven sources of honey in the same jar. There's also no technical organic certification for honey because certification for organic is based on crop practices and bees and hives don't aren't considered a crop. So there's this like lack of enforcement. So you can really label the thing anything you want and there's no one going to come give you a fine. I was going to say, I, I feel like I see organic honey on the shelf all the time. You do. And there's no enforcement. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's this no man's land. and I don't know how it got this way. Part of me, that goes back to my comment, like it kind of saddens me that the fact that we use a third party lab to test our product and that's not done across the board is shocking. You know, the, the piece of equipment we use is called a nuclear magnetic resonance machine, whatever, testing device. And it breaks down the molecular structure of the honey to verify it's, you know, molecularly honey, unadulterated. And it also takes the pollen and matches it against a DNA library of pollen to verify it's from the regions in which we're being told it is. So it's a hard backstop on quality. We've already blacklisted producers. We've nixed regions. So we are starting to already set those standards and practices to what we've created, which is a regenerative honeycomb continuum, which is, you know, practices for queen management and breeding, um, land practices, hive structure, road management, obviously pesticides and forage zone land use and quality and testing. So that's our own internal standards, which are now being reviewed by larger organizations to adopt as global standards for regenerative honey. It strikes me that you could probably go create a compelling consumer facing honey brand without going to the lengths that you're going right now. And I know that in some of your other deals, supply chain plays a big role. Vertical integration plays a big role. You know, why is what you're doing on the back end so important to you and so important to what you see the success of your company being? I don't trust existing honey. And I sure as hell don't trust existing honey coming to the United States. Not at scale. And if, if I want to educate people on the benefits of honeycomb versus liquid honey, this unadulterated pure from the bee, it's not going to be in a liquid honey form. I don't, sitting here today, I don't ever intend to sell liquid honey. I want to be the honeycomb company. And that allows us to have a different conversation. As a consumer, if you say, well, you know, I like the honey I buy off the shelf. It's sweet and it, you know, tastes good on whatever I'm putting it on. Why should I be invested in the importance of authentic honey? One, I'll say just taste our honeycomb because it has a total different experience. Okay. That whole, that whole snacking honey component is, <laughs> it sounds silly. What's snacking honey? But like, we literally have honey you can chew. It's like, what? Well, it's natural. It's not, it's not a gummy vitamin. So that's super cool and unique and novel. And I'm not going to you know, discount novelty as something that why people pick it up and do it. But I will guarantee you that not a single other honey producer is doing the level of standard setting, ensuring of standards, enforcement of standards to the levels we're doing. And none of them are able to create their own supply chain because they're playing in like a low margin commodity place. Um, people complain, you know, not everyone, but like there's, there's obviously our honeycomb is expensive. 
but that's what it costs to source the highest quality honey, ensure it's the highest quality honey, and have the proceeds to actually reinvest to ensure we can grow that supply of pure, unadulterated, you know, regeneratively sourced honey. Like it, none of that stuff comes cheap. You know, quality does not come cheap. And it sounds like people are willing to pay that price. Yeah. And I think the more we get out there, that is probably it's this education and this hurdle. People, my sister-in-law is a great example. She was like, never in the world, Doug. When I told her the idea. And then she tried some and she's a total convert. And she was, you know, then she was asking for the free boxes because it was too expensive. And now they're, I think they're on a subscription, like a big package every month. It's just one of those things that you like, once you have it, you're kind of like, well, that was cool. And I really like it. And it's, it's not a premium good. It's more of an indulgence. And right now people are, there I say people are looking for a little bit of escape. And if you're going to have a sugar, you might as well have it directly from, you know, a natural source that it hasn't been blended. I mean, it's a, it's a cool little thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. From a source perception, why would you, it's experience. It's the experience of honeycomb versus liquid honey is different. Snacking honey. And if you could think about, you know, what's the legacy that you would like past the honey to create here with everything that you're working on, I guess, what is that legacy? What is that goal that you have in mind? So we've publicly stated our aim is 7 million acres of pollinator habitat creation, enhancement, or restoration in 15 years. So that is like the, that is the measurable timeline-based goal of the entire company. Now, there's the other things that fall out of it, which is cleaning up in a you know, commercial commodity class, like kind of getting rid of some of the fraudulent and bad actors. So there's that, which, again, sourcing the highest quality honeycomb for consumer experience obviously is paramount, but that requires us to have the commitment to the acreage and uh, the research and the habitat restoration to be able to deliver that high-quality comb. And then by the acts of doing that, we're automatically removing some fraud from the audience because we're educating the consumer. Sure. You're entering a market where it's a, a race to the bottom and, and trying to elevate everyone uh, to the upper levels. It's tough. And it's really tough to be in a space and know the standards that we're doing, the work we're doing, and then hear people just troll you on the internet for something that is just either is not, is completely false or is misinformed. Or it's just a difference of opinion. And it's just like, wow, like, like, I don't know anybody doing this kind of work. Like, and I've tried, like, I've been, this, been doing this for a little while. And that's probably the toughest thing is you know, I take it really personally, which is more than I you know what? No, I just take it personally. And I'm going to say I should. This has become my life's work. And I hope to always be doing it. And so that said, I'm going to take things personally. It's not just business to me. The people that work with us and for us, or not even for us, but the work with the company, it's more than just a paycheck. You know, there's a purpose here. And so the legacy you mentioned, it's maybe, maybe my tombstone will say, shit, that was impressive. <laughs> like, at the end of the day, <laughs> like, like, wow, who would have thought? Yeah, I got, sorry, I got a little sidetracked there. But what was the original question was about? I'd love to jump on something else, which is, you clearly have such a strong purpose as you just articulated that is consuming your time and, and your efforts that you're very passionate about. It sounds like that's a substantial divergence from the, the last decade that you described earlier. What's that feel like to have this incredible sort of drive with this one goal versus spending a lot of time as you described rudderless? 
to understand either what your purpose is or to really strive for your maximum potential. And as cliche as that sounds to be able to push the boundary, your own boundaries, your own fear, knowing that I came from, you know, rock bottom, there is a general peace to me right now. And so to have that anchor as a North star or whatever you want to call it, like that direction and that focus with the experience and the, dare I say, wisdom of being through the muck, it's not nearly as scary, which makes, you know, it allows me to perform better and not being redless. Also all the self-destructive stuff, not having that even be in the equation is just, I'm like literally performing my best every single day. Yes. I might have a bad night's sleep, you know, but for the most part, I'm like on a 9.8 out of 10 every single day, which is just a different place to operate from. And it sounds like you wouldn't be the, the CEO you are, the operator you are, but for what you went through. Is that fair? Correct. But I'm also scared every day making decisions. And I mean, I, what the folks that are going to be listening to this don't hear is that you know, I called you last week and I pushed our call because I had just a kind of a rough week with cash flow and it just was kind of uncertain. It was like, ooh, there's a lot. And you start to question every decision you ever made because that's just what we do to ourselves. So, yeah, like I can talk about being peaceful, but like th- those moments are very limited. It was like two hours. It just happened to be the two hours we had scheduled. <laughs> so thank you for allowing me to push this a week. But uh, yeah, it's just even though I have this experience and even though I've seen, you know, 12,000, whatever deals. And I have all these friends that are in the space, you know, that that are willing to help. I still hesitate to share kind of the hardships of people, not nearly as much as I did before, but like, especially people you admire, but that's when I do it, it always generates a way better relationship and conversation. It's just authentic. Like we're all figuring shit out, man. So I don't ever want to be some inspirational story. I'd rather just be some sort of like, I don't know. Like we're all figuring out, man. No one has it all together. No one, not a single person has it all figured out. So we're all ratchety in some sense of our life. And you know, right now I'm not ratchety individually, but sometimes I get a little ratchety for an hour or two about the work. But uh, yeah, it's, it's what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's up and down every day, particularly in an entrepreneurial environment. I, you know, a lot of the reason that I wanted to have this show is because I think that We do a good job celebrating people when they have success, particularly economic success, but you don't often know about the sleepless nights or the rock bottom uh, or the the paralyzing decisions you have to make. You came and you're like, what do I go? What do I do? Every decision seems like it has a big pro and a horrible con. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you can't see yourself out of it, but that's where leaning on friends and being open you know, being able to talk to you last week was super helpful. I talked to another founder and it was super helpful. And a lot of it's just perspective. It's just like, yeah, I'm going through the same thing. And it's not with you, but with the other founder, it was like 10 times worse. I'm like, shit, I'm glad I'm not in your seat. <laughs> <laughs> and we laughed about it later. He's like, yeah, it's not, not so cheery over here. Like, but from the outside, it looks so perfect. <laughs> um, but we're, we're all, we're all living in that. I, you never know. when you, you look under the hood. I think it, uh, oftentimes it's, uh, People don't appreciate you look at enough of these things. No, no. But the minute you say something like that, yeah. yeah, I think, you know, I'm writing a book and it's, it's a choose your own adventure book. And it's one of these things like, you know, there's decisions and you get to make the decisions and how you make decisions will affect things positively or negatively. And there is no right path. Like there is no one path. There's no, although there's a big, you know, how I built this podcast, but 
I don't, there's no, like, this is how you have to build it podcast because it's not, yeah. there isn't, it's, choose it is literally adventure. a choose. It's a choose for adventure. Yeah, and is. most of them end in death or if you're playing Oregon trail dysentery, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, yeah, it's tough. It's tough, but you know, you can, I'm starting to learn the value of peer groups. Not even starting, but I'm just starting to, you know, really open myself up more to peer groups and understanding that there's knowledge and willingness to, assist if you ask a very pointed question with a very direct, you know, request. Yeah. And power and vulnerability. People can't help you if they don't exactly. know what you're dealing with. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. That is the, the tough one though. Right. Absolutely. God, that was fun. Fundraising for a fund with like not a pot to piss in trying to talk in languages. I didn't understand fully e- educating people on a category that had never had venture capital in it. What a mess. <laughs> what a mess <laughs> but all part of the adventure the journey right yeah some people might say i did it backwards like raising a fund managing you know private equity and venture funds and buying food companies before i even ran one but it's all helping me in past honey i'll tell you that much i mean gosh um, at least i'm avoiding the mistakes i saw most frequently like those those yep. are not being done but i'm still you know guilty of falling for some red herrings here and there getting enticed with the big big bait that comes on a hook sometimes. Sure. Everyone. Yeah. It's hard to turn those things away. If somebody's listening to this right now, that feels like they're, they're digging for bedrock or potentially uh, uh, flirting with rock bottom. What's your advice for, for some, well, you can email me at Douglas at pass the honey. That's an offer, but it's really just share with people around you. It's just, and even just say like, I'm having a tough day. It starts with that. It's just that, that little crack to open the door to a deeper conversation. You don't have to unload on people, but you know, it can even be a stranger at the coffee shop. Like if somebody asks how you're doing and you're having a shitty day and you say, I'm fine. How are you? Like that just further puts you in a bad spot because you know, you're lying. So it's as simple as just being transparent. And again, giving people the opportunity to ask some more questions and offer that assistance. Yeah. Be honest, even if it's to strangers. Yeah, exactly. It's just be off. Yeah. Be truly authentic. And, you know, it's shocking the conversations that I've had, I've had when I have been very just matter of fact, like not the kind of the expected responses and things. And it's not that I'm trying to knock people off, you know, their center, but it's definitely, it's, it's a totally different, authentic, engaging, present conversation when you speak from honesty and not just like root responses. Yeah. It's powerful once you, once you start opening up. Yeah. I agree. Douglas, if people want to find out more about your brand, all the work that you're doing, where would they go find out more about that? Passthehoney.com or passthehoney on Instagram. And then there should be some publicity coming out. Hopefully on Earth Day. Very cool. Well, very excited for everything that Pass the Honey is doing and very much appreciate your time today. It's been a great conversation and lots of uh, pearls of wisdom. So I thank you for that. I thank you. I appreciate you for doing this and opening it up and getting the dialogue going. Awesome. Well, this has been great, Douglas. Thank you and best of luck with Pass the Honey. Oh, no luck necessary. It'll be great. (laughs) I'll see you later. (laughs) See you later. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you 
at whatdidn'tkillyou.com, and you can follow along at whatdidn'tkillyou on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.